0: Testing, testing. Is it on? Good. No, not on. Good. I'm going to talk and we'll figure out. Is it on now? Good. Uh, I wanted to tell you guys thank you for everyone who's put time and money and effort into getting us into a place where we could um, grow by a pretty significant amount. Uh, before we need to move again, if we need to if that 's what God decides to do um, it 's just amazing. The guys who are you know running cable all over this place to get the words on the screen and uh, the guys that worked yesterday on the stage and getting all the sound and uh, it, you know over the last however a couple months just pop in here every now and again, and you 'd see people who uh, were just giving their time so thank you so much. Uh, so many donations and things that came in just for different things around even in this uh, Sanctuary that you just just Thank God for so thank you guys for doing that Um, I don't Know how many of you we're in Galatians 3 Verse 10 today and I don't Know how many of you guys like to argue Uh, Not Argue like you need to take the Christmas lights down no I want to watch the football Game argue but like Actually compose an argument Logic right like a lawyer might Do Um, Follow rules of logic try to arrive At a point um, an understanding of truth that will broaden your mind and hopefully those who are participating in the discussion as well uh, I think that 's actually pretty important for uh, for us to be able to do uh, a lot of times we let our emotions run wild and, and kind of ruin things, uh, but Paul is being very logical and he 's making a very precise argument as he often does um, and, and in today 's text he 's even more specifically he 's making a negative argument so you and I do this all the time when we're trying to prove our points. Uh, a positive argument is if you're arguing for something, uh, for example, let's say I'm trying to argue with you that Baker Mayfield's a better quarterback than Mason Rudolph. So, like, last week's message would have been me saying everything great about Baker Mayfield. Like, the positive argument of, you know, set the NCAA efficiency rating by five points last year, and then he broke it again last year by eight more points. 2 or 3.6 or 8, something like that. Who's counting? Um, you know, maybe I would tell you that he set the NCAA record for yards per attempt at 11.6, or he won the Heisman. That's the positive argument, which is what Paul did last week. What he did was he's arguing positively for justification by faith. He's making the positive. But this week he goes to the negative. And so the negative argument in my example would be like I would then attack Mason Rudolph's stats and be like, look, he has more interceptions. His record in Bedlam, whatever. Whatever you wanted to do there. Um, I don't want to not make friends, so I'll stop. But um, that's, that's what Paul's doing today. He's, the negative argument is now attacking justification by works. So if you know what he's doing um, in this passage, it will help us understand a little bit more fully where he's going with the arguments here in Galatians 3, uh, setting forth uh, not only the positive argument for justification by faith, but then the negative today, turning the tables uh, attacking justification by works. And what we said uh, in here, in Galatians, is that his, his tone is super intense. In Galatians, he just starts out, like, even last week, You foolish Galatians who has bewitched you? You foolish, have you forgotten? All these things, Paul, is, is pretty intense. And sometimes whenever you only do a few verses per week... Uh, We kind of tend to forget, you know, the whole entire tone of Galatians, uh, but I don't think we need to do that. We really need to be focused on uh, the tone of his passage here as he makes this argument. You've probably seen that guy in class or maybe a part of a team where the teacher decides like it's time to get serious and sets the serious tone. There's always that one dude, normally a dude, who's like has to make one more joke. Or do one more thing to his friend to make him laugh And then the teacher loses it Or the coach loses it Like, don't be that guy Today there's passage You want to get serious When Paul gets serious I shouldn't make jokes So I'm trying to make you get serious About the passage But we've all been there And this is Paul's, This is Paul saying Hey, listen And I'll, I'll show you why in a second um, I, I personally, sometimes when Paul talks And I think many of you are with me It sounds a little bit intense He's a little bit up in our, our grill and uh, I can sometimes be turned off by that. Uh, I think people in our in our world, especially today, uh, probably can do the same thing. I think sometimes we don't really think we need a new heart. We just think we need some redirection. Like, oh, it's okay. A we'll little redirect. Them. You know, like my kid tries to run the street. Let's redirect them. We don't want to really whatever, hurt their feelings. God forbid. Um, and I think sometimes what we need... And in passages like this is, is to think about the context a little bit more and understand that maybe we're letting the worldview of our American soft society creep into how we listen. Uh, because when you look at Scripture, you see Paul calling you foolish. You see Jesus telling these religious authorities, Hey, you know what? You're a spawn of Satan. And these guys were trying to worship Yahweh. Uh, you see, you know, two weeks ago, Peter said, or Paul said, I opposed Peter to to his face, right? And, you know, Peter actually was called Satan by Jesus. So I think at, at that moment, Peter could have said, you know what? Well, that, you think that might hurt my feelings, but I've actually been called Satan by Jesus. So it try to hurt my feelings, but it didn't work. Um, but... Point being, though, when we have an intense tone, sometimes I like shrink back. It's, you know, I know people are wired different ways, and sometimes we're wired to shrink back. And I would encourage you uh, that when you start to understand justification by, by faith instead of works, that, that thing that causes you to shrink back actually kind of goes away a little bit because you realize that you are sinful. And it's okay to call it what it is, because Christ has done the work. You're far more sinful, as we say, than you ever dared believe. And yet, you're far more loved than you ever dared believe. Um, And so, hear that. Hear this Galatians 3, this attack against works based salvation here in verse 10. Please read with me. uh, On the screen here, we have the, the words For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, amen, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And if you read this with just no context, I say there's no background, you just read this, These five verses, you keep hearing the words law and curse repeated five times a piece, actually. So just at the outset, before you even know what Paul's argument is, you can see there's a couple things that he focuses on that are negative uh, law and curse. Um, But not just the law, which we'll talk about in a second, but the law to try to save you. So one thing else I want you to remember before we go a little bit deeper is that Galatians was written to a church. It wasn't written to non-believers. And so what I mean by that is that Paul isn't saying that people inside the church will tell you, you know what? You you, you can practice justification by faith. It'll be good. And then all these non-believers outside the church will be attacking you and saying, no, you can can earn it by works. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying that inside the church, people will tell you That you can be justified by works. Which is a huge error. And that's what he's fighting here. We have to think about the audience. And it causes a serious attitude of self-reflection. I have a slide here from 2 Corinthians 13. Another letter from Paul. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test... Paul wants us to have this contemplative attitude towards this and a self-reflective attitude. And I, I'm a Bible teacher, so you know I love theology, obviously. Um, and sometimes I'll have a kid say this or that, like, "Hey, man, lay off the theology; it's a little deep," you know. And no, I'm not going to lay off the theology because Paul doesn't, and and God is super clear to us that theology is very, very important because inside the body people will twist. Satan is not stupid. We'll see that here in a second. Um, some of his strategy is really clever. Really clever. And so we have to fight bad theology with good theology because eternity could be, out, be at stake. That's why Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Um, why does he hammer this so hard? It's because eternity is at stake. In chapter 5, I'm not going to go into it now, even though I want to because I'm kind of a junior high boy. But Paul gets really, really offensive about how he attacks this. Uh, If you don't believe me that he's really hard on this point here, like wait a couple weeks and I'll let Dylan talk about those parts. But um, it's, once again, the struggle if you leave here and then you come back and leave here and you come back. And we don't get all the way to... um, You know, all the way through Galatians in one week, we can kind of forget how intense he is being. Here's a quote from John Piper about this point. It says, evidently, Paul believed that there was a teaching among the churches of Galatia, which was so destructive to people and so dishonoring to God that it merited a divine curse. It was a teaching propagated not by secular humanists from Athens, but by God-fearing Jewish Christian church members from Jerusalem. The reason the book of Galatians has such a radical, life-changing message is that it pronounces a curse from God, not on atheistic or agnostic outsiders, but on professing Christians who try to serve God in a way that diminishes His grace and cultivates their own pride. Galatians is God's reminder to sojourn that we are in constant danger of false... It's not sojourn. He put his church's name there. Galatians is God's reminder to sojourn that we are in constant danger of false assurances. Satan is continuously at work, tempting us to think and feel that because we use God talk and come to church and pray at mealtimes and avoid gross sins, we are therefore under God's blessing. But the book of Galatians concerns a group of people called Judaizers who do all those things and are under God's curse. Verse 10, there's a slide. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed. Be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. I was telling the pastors this morning, this passage, this word curse, and atonement substitutionary, atonement of Jesus Christ for us. These are two themes, there's a lot of themes, but these two themes are really deep. And you could go a long time talking on, on, on both of them, and we can't, we don't have time for that. But I had a pastor friend who, who sent me a message uh, this week and said, hey, I heard you're preaching on this passage. Here's a passage from R.C. Sproul about your passage. And I was like, sweet, thanks for making me feel like an idiot. Um, Because he's awesome. And I would highly encourage you guys to search. If you want to know more about the curse, he does an entire hour-long teaching on just the curse. Motif is what he calls it. Um, From the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. Because a lot of times we think of the curse as like a Harry Potter... That's a spell. Whatever. Curse. Whatever they do. I don't read those books. Dylan does. Is it a curse? Curse. Okay. Right. Or we think we think of like the occult, we think of curses in that way. But the Bible, the biblical definition, and oracles and all this stuff—there's stuff way before the oracles of Delphi you learn about in, you know, ancient Greek history and, and stuff like that—and it originates in the Bible. And he goes way deep into that. So go uh, YouTube that; it's really good. We can't go there. I don't—I'm not smart enough anyway. But if you want to go deeper into that, and um, verse ten talks about it, and this relationship we have to the law can be really tricky for a Christian. I hear it misused all the time, and I don't know if we ever fully grasp it. But most of the time, when I hear it, like people talking about the law and how it is a curse, I hear things like you know this sin that the Old Testament clearly condemns, and then someone will be like, "Yeah, but then Jesus came, and it's all grace." So it's like, "Here's the law, Old Testament, terrible, blah. It's mean. God is mean. Then I mean, thanks for Jesus who lets us do whatever we want, then forgives us." Like you hear that, and people don't always say it like in that tone of voice. I'm mocking them. Um, But you hear it, you see it actually playing out. And I I can't really, I can't attack all of that right now because we get to it later in Galatians. But it's, it's such a misreading of what the law is. Especially when you look at Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount, deepening the law for the believer. He actually makes the requirements even more. You know, saying things like, yeah, you... You haven't committed adultery, but you've lusted after a woman. You haven't murdered, but you've been angry with your brother. Um, Jesus is not the opposite of the law. In fact, He says, I've come to fulfill the law. So the reason I mention that is a lot of times we hear this word law and we think, oh, bad. Right? Bad. It's not all bad. What's bad is when the law, we try to use it to justify it. The law is good. It's beautiful. It tells us of God's character, but it does not work. And it curses you, let's not mince words, to hell if you think it saves you. Tom Schreiner says, when Paul says the law is not a faith, it is a mistake to read this as a wholesale rejection of the law in the lives of Christians. Once again, I, we don't have a whole lot of time to go into what the role of the law is, and Dylan will get to that in the coming weeks. But I do think it's really important to give you an intro. I've seen, I've seen many historically Christian institutions mess this up, whether it's the local church, but more often than not, it's, it's more at the seminary level or the Christian college level of denominations. And uh, I think a lot of times, all of a sudden, they'll, they'll believe this thing about the law, and, and they'll accept some certain sin, and then the dominoes will fall, and then we'll be sitting here in the local church, and like we'll get this edict from on high that now our denomination believes this, and we're like... Where did that happen, right? And I've seen a ton of it that's actually... This is the heart of the issue. is how to interpret the law and grace. And... I mean, this I, I can't go too far into this. We can grab coffee sometime if you want to talk about it. But check your seminaries. Check your institutions. See what they're teaching. Satan is smart. He's going to go there. He knows he's going to be in the pulpit later, right? So why not go there and try to teach this misinterpretation so that it'll funnel down into the body... Paul, just two chapters later, though, once again, the law is not bad. It's how we use it. Two chapters later, in Galatians 5, 13-15, we see him use it in a positive way. He says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love and serve one another. Um, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another... Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Again, Romans eight three through four. I have another slide there, um, really quick. The law being used in a positive way. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous—it's a righteous requirement in the law—might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then the last one, Romans thirteen eight through ten. Another positive. Use of the law. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Christ came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. The law is not evil and Christ is good. And we'll dive, like I said, more into that. But the point of today's passage is that it's a curse if we use it to justify. Some of you guys are small group leaders or maybe you've gotten that Tim Keller, Galatians for You uh, commentary. It's really great. It's uh, very readable. And uh, you may have, if you've read this week to prepare for your small group, you've probably read a little bit of what he said. He had a great quote in there. He said, um, you know, he, he doesn't just talk about the theological aspect that we're talking about here, that you know, trying to justify yourself by works will end in a curse. He actually goes to the psychological, he goes a little bit deeper um, as well. And here's his quote. And as you're listening to this quote, see if you can find yourself in this description, and you'll see what it looks like when you try to justify yourself by your own works in your head. Objectively, attempting salvation by law observance means we are cursed. We know that, we just talked about. This means that, though, psychologically, everyone who is seeking to save themselves by their own performance will experience a curse subjectively. That means you yourself will also have certain specific ramifications and consequences for your own sin in this area. At the very least, attempting to be saved by works will lead to a profound anxiety and insecurity, because you can never be sure that you are living up to your standards sufficiently, whatever they may be. This makes you oversensitive to criticism, envious. See, do you hear yourself in here? Intimidated by others who outshine you. It makes you nervous and timid because you're unsure of where you stand. Or else, swaggering and boastful because you're trying to convince yourself of where you stand. Either way, you live with a sense of curse and condemnation. Do you hear yourself in any of that? I do. Oversensitive to criticism? Intimidated? Probably a good sign that in some area we're trying to justify ourselves by works instead of realizing that God already did that in Christ. You're free from that. You don't have to be over-anxious. You don't have to look around and you're set free, as we just read or say. We're no longer slaves. You don't have to look around and say, "Oh man, that's the sort of life I need to provide for my family. I'm not making the money to, to do that anymore." Or um, that mom is momming way better than me, or whatever. I mean, insert your sin here. Rest in Christ's work because it's wearing you out, and you know it. It's it's putting you in slavery. I have another football analogy. I'm sorry. Um, my football analogies are Dylan's Lord of the Rings analogies. Uh, Sorry, not sorry, as they say. Uh, At two o'clock today, Jaguars and Patriots are going to play, and for the AFC Championship. And something happened this week as I was studying this that made me see this very clearly of what it looks like to be secure versus insecure and lashing out, as Tim Keller says here in a second. Uh, Anyone ever heard of Jalen Ramsey? You know who that is, okay? Maybe even before this week, you probably may haven't heard of Jalen Ramsey. Uh, He kind of made news this week because the Jaguars upset the Steelers a couple weeks ago, or last week. And, you know, the Steelers and Patriots had played a few weeks ago, into the season. It was a great game. The Steelers scored a touchdown, but they didn't call it because of stupid rule. And so the Patriots won. And so everyone's like, man, just wait for the AFC Championship rematch. It's going to be great. Well, last week, the Jaguars actually upset the Steelers. And so Jalen Ramsey, who's a defensive back for the Jaguars... They get home. There's this great celebration. And uh, he grabs the mic and he says the following, and I quote to this crowd going raucous. Here's what he says. I ain't got much to say, but y'all make sure you bring that same energy out here next week and the week after. We go into the Super Bowl and we're going to win that bleep. Um, Jalen Ramsey, have you ever heard of Tom Brady? Okay. Okay. You haven't heard of Jalen Ramsey unless you have. I mean, he is a good cornerback or defensive back. He's good. He's not bad. But you probably haven't heard of him. You've heard of Tom Brady because he's won five Super Bowls, right? And much like Tim Keller says, (laughs) it makes you nervous and timid whenever you're insecure because you're unsure of where you stand or else swaggering and boastful, which is exactly what Jalen Ramsey is, because you're trying to convince yourself of where you stand. This is just football. It's a silly game. Right, but even in football, we see what that looks like: insecurity because you're trying to justify yourself. And so, Jalen Ramsey. And by the way, I put it. I went on his Twitter account because I want to see like what's this guy about. And his last tweet was a <laughs> was that. So, it, from, actually, from Galatians, even uh, he quoted Bible verse. But I also wanted to show you Tom Brady did respond. The five-time winning Super Bowl champ, probably the best ever, and I hate to say that because I don't like him, but I can say I can respect the man. He says this. Tell me if you hear like security in this Tom Brady quote. Everyone has different way of handling things. Players do, coaches do. We do what works for us. It's working. Other players do what works for them. The game is going to be decided by who plays the best, not who hypes the best or speaks the best. He's a really good player, talking of Jalen Ramsey. I've watched a ton of film on him. He has a lot of strengths. He's obviously very confident. That is reflected in how he plays. I am more concerned about how he plays opposed to what he says. We're going to have to play really well to score points, Brady said. Again, that just speaks to the hype and us really trying to stay focused on what we need to do. The better we stay focused or the more laser focused we are on our target, the better I think we will play. Who's winning today? I mean, I hope the Jaguars, let's be honest. But, sorry Zach, if you're here... Would not, I mean, they could win. But most likely, the one who's secure. Do you hear in Tom Brady's response, he's like, you know what? I can respect my opponent. Respect all, fear none, right? He's not insecure. Jalen Ramsey is insecure. And that's just football. What does that look like in the church when we try to justify ourselves out of this insecurity? The stakes are so much higher when it comes to justification. So, what's Paul saying? Take stock. Are you secure? Do you know where you stand? Because of the work of Christ. Or are you constantly running around anxious. Looking for approval. Even trying to undermine. Like Jalen Ramsey is Prominent or seasoned Christians. I've seen this. In order to make yourself look a certain way. Don't. Trust in the work of Christ. And Paul's Once again. As he has been this whole time. He's uber biblical in his defense. He's just quoting scripture. After scripture. After scripture. He's not just using logic and reason. Which he can do very well. But in Deuteronomy, and he quotes Deuteronomy twenty-seven, twenty-six here in Galatians, where it says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And so, you know, we can even learn here, like sometimes Paul uses logic and reason. Go check out Mars Hill, right? Amazing passage as he's speaking to pagans. But here he's speaking to a church. So he does use logic and reason. But as you're going to see, he quotes five Old Testament passages in five verses. The dude is just so immersed in God's word and his scripture, it just comes out in his argument. And he knows his, his audience. So the interesting part, Deuteronomy 27, that he just quotes, is God telling these Israelites on the edge of the promised land a couple things to do. He says, listen, when you get in the land, go to Shechem, which we learned in Abraham 12, or Abraham 12, Genesis 12, to Abraham, <laughs> don't ever give me the mic, um, Chapter 12 in Genesis, he tells Abraham, hey, this land, at Shechem, he actually gives the promise for all the land at Shechem. So fast forward a few hundred years later, and they're at Shechem again. And it's like, oh, this is cool. They're actually going into the land at the same place. And God gives them some instructions. Obviously, Moses doesn't get to go in. His bag. Remember, hit the rock, all that. Joseph, I mean, Joshua gets to take them in. And this is what God says to do. He says, Put six tribes on one mountain, six tribes on the other, and one will pronounce curses for not following the law over here on Mount Ebal. He tells them make pillars, take these unhewn stones, put plaster around them, and then carve the law into this large pillar so it just looks over you and curses. You could look up when you weren't following the law and the covenants and know that God has said this, and so here is your consequence. We know that they did. <laughs> fail a bunch on the covenant. We know the Old Testament is an ugly mess. And so when you read Deuteronomy 27, which he's quoting here, you'll see this cursed portion of the ceremony where God is just reminding them of the covenant and His own holiness. And so Paul summarizes this end where Moses says at the end, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Um, Side note, I have a picture up here. This place actually exists. I know it's hard to believe. The Bible says something actually exists. But they found this altar 23 feet by 30 feet. um, And there's actually like pottery from Joshua's time there. This place still exists on Mount Ebal. And as you can see there, those stones are unhewn. They're stacked upon each other. Go to Israel and find it there at Shechem. But what basically Paul is saying in this well-known passage is that the law is a tutor. Just like it was back in the day. It was to show them, it was to point out to them um, that they needed a bigger sacrifice. That covenant that they would fail, that they needed to the sacrifice Jesus, our substitute as we'll see in a second. And we need the law to show us how helpless we are. And point us to that most beautiful sacrifice, Jesus. So now verse 11 makes way more sense. I have it on a slide. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Again, Paul's quoting the Old Testament to prove his point. The righteous shall live by faith. That's from Habakkuk. Just like he said last week in Genesis 15, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, he's solidifying over and over to this original audience here in Galatians that this is not a new concept. He's just calling us back to something that we've known forever and we've forgotten. We have misused and mistranslated how to use the law. This bad theology has come in undetected. One more really quick before I get to the final point, the main point. Verse 12, But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And this is from Leviticus 18.5. He's pointing out that even though the Israelites were to follow certain rules to differentiate themselves from like pagans, um, and they would be blessed... They still wouldn't save them. So actually, Leviticus 18.5 here, he's quoting, it's actually in a positive way. Paul's quoting it and showing them the negative side though. The law is good for you and in us. We want to follow the law. That's good. It's not the parts that are still, that Christ hasn't fulfilled already. But he turns it negative and says, do not begin to think that these things save you. So the commentators would say like, verse 10-12 is the crisis Uh, as some have called it, that we can't be justified by the law. We are cursed. But then, verse 13 gives us the answer. And we have it on the slide. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree. shows us that the only way for the curse of the law to be removed is through Jesus Christ. It became the curse for us, and the law required perfect obedience, and we couldn't do it, but Jesus did. Which, I love what Randy had us read. Um, I have it on the slide, that first, first slide again. This corporate reading of this hymn. Free from the law, O happy condition, Jesus hath bled and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, Christ hath redeemed us. Once for all. I knew the tune. I wanted to sing it. It was in my head. We were singing it. I love that song. Um, it's beautiful. And this is where we get the idea of substitutionary atonement. We needed something to atone for our sins, and it had to be a substitute because we could not do it. He redeemed us, as verse 13 says, and He redeemed us by becoming the curse. Which is why Paul and then Paul quotes in Deuteronomy 21.13, Curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. And I'm going to talk about that in a second, but this is the how. This is the how the redemption of you and I actually happened. He became our curse, our substitute. Um, sometimes you hear people criticize this view of the atonement. Uh, they don't really want to think that we're that bad, that we just need a little bit of help along our way. We don't need an actual substitute. We're not actually bound for hell. Our sin isn't actually sinning. there. That's not true. We actually need a substitute in someone someone's pay for our sin and say what Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It is to tell us stuff, right? As Dylan talked about last week, the work of Jesus Christ took our place. And this is, where, this is really what I struck me in the text this week. This curse talk. Because think about what Paul used to do before he was a Christian. What was his job? He killed these people. He killed these people for believing this. And so how are we a few years later, this miracle to where in his mind, you know, the old Paul saw there was no way, there was no way that the Messiah could have been killed. Not only that, but then cursed by being hung on a tree. The Jews didn't crucify. Uh, The Romans invented crucifixion, but they had this law in Deuteronomy 21. We just read... Um, that curses everyone who hangs on a tree. And what they would do is if they did execute somebody, they didn't put their body on a tree or a post so everyone could see it and say, yep, this is what happens when you do that. Disobey your parents. Well, that one's stony, never mind. Um, but <laughs> the pile of stones was enough to see, as we say. But if you did certain transgressions, this is your body, and so you were cursed. And so Paul is, in his mind, his old, his old self, he, in his mind, he was purifying Judaism. He saw these Christians, you know, Jesus comes along and he dies. And so in his fervor and zeal, he's like, Ah, man, I gotta purify Israel. This is a very dangerous sect. So he goes and he starts to do that. He actually believes his convictions and he acts on them, curses everyone who hangs on the tree. And so one commentator said this would be an intolerable contradiction for Paul, so that he knew without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus of Nazareth was emphatically not the Messiah. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20, see what Paul says about this to the Corinthians. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It's folly to preach about a guy who dies. It's even more folly for the Jew because the guy who died and then got put on a tree has been cursed. And everyone knew that, right? Everyone knew that. Paul definitely knew that. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. You know, Gentiles are all about power. You know, your Messiah is going to come with power. He can't die. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So don't miss what God has done to transform Paul to actually believing this. And I want to pose to you the same question. This is the self-reflective portion, just like this huge hang-up that Paul had about the Messiah being killed and then cursed. What is it about Jesus of Nazareth that seems like folly to you? Probably not the part about hanging on a tree. We're 2,000 years into that. Our society, our Judeo Christian values, we wear crosses on our net now. It's not that big of a stumbling block. But Jesus has things he says to us that will reveal our stumbling blocks and our idols. Paul had his Jewish idols, we have our American idols. So maybe it's when he says something like, Sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And he'll challenge your stumbling block of money and comfort maybe when he says give to the beggar he'll challenge your view of who is deserving and what your time or money you've spent on maybe it's when he literally says in luke 6 blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of god he might challenge our view of what actually is blessing and what actually is woe because four verses later he tells us what woe is but woe to you who are rich For you have received your consolation. He will challenge your view of vocation and family. This Jesus of Nazareth said, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. And no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's not forget when he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He will challenge your view of nationalism and power and political ideology. Jesus will. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. He'll challenge our idea that we're sort of a mortal, moral person. We just kind of need, you know, we didn't kill anybody, right? He'll say, yeah, but you've hated your brother. Or, yeah, but you've lusted after another woman, so you have committed adultery. So Jesus demands our all, and He will find our idol. Just like he found Paul's. And he's saying, for every one of our idols, which Paul's was rampant nationalism and extremely zealous, pharisaical beliefs, yours might be different. Yours might be that you could never imagine everything you've saved your whole life, giving it up to go to Dragontown so that some maniac Tibetans can hear the gospel for the first time ever. That'd be foolish. That's folly. Who would ever do that? Look at all you've saved. Look at all that work. But I'm telling you, just like he got Paul, he will get you. And he will find you the hounds of heaven. It doesn't matter how long you've lived your life. The rules, your self-inflicted rules that you put on yourself that work pretty well in a society like America, he will come after you. And he will get you. And He will get the glory for that. So my advice is don't get comfortable. Uh, Let's finish. Look at the last verse. All this is fine and good. This is a great argument. I mean, so many elements we didn't even touch on, but we could. But the pinnacle of all of this and all of chapter 3 is actually verse 14. It's the so that. So that. Why this detailed, finely tuned nuanced argument about justification by faith instead of works. Why? What's the so-that behind it? Why argue all that stuff? Verse 14. How about on a slide? In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. You see the heart of the gospel here? He's not sitting around having friends over, like, I'm sure Paul had a nice beard, you know, like, thumbing his beard and drinking some choice, whatever they drank back then, coffee or wine or whatever. And you know what? I think that you know here's the positive argument of this and the negative argument and um, blah, 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 blah. He's not doing that so he can sit around and feel smart and make other people feel like he's better than them and like, oh, glory to Paul. He's doing it because of the Great Commission. He's making this argument so that if we understand it, the so that is that the Gentiles will get the gospel... That's why theology is important inside the church. It's not only because your personal salvation is at risk. You could be cursed. It's more, way more than that. Way more than that. It's the glory of God, and it's not being, God is not having his praises sung in certain areas of the world yet. And he's going to be one day, and so he's super concerned that we understand theology correctly, that it would be our impetus to go. It's not the thing that we sit around and be frozen, chosen, as people have said before. His theology doesn't freeze him. It emboldens him and it activates him. And he's doing it so that these Gentiles, these unreached, would realize salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, for the glory of Christ. How many times? Like, I'm a pastor, I do this way too much. Pastors, small groups, leader, whatever you are. Christians we sit around and we debate all these finer points and we forget the so that. That's the most important part. It's the so that's like practicing all the time and not ever playing the game. That's really boring because practice stinks. Well, that's not a good illustration, because I do like to say. Practice is the hard part. The game's the fun part, right? Why sit in here and get equipped and then just nah, not go? What's the point? Sojourn, we are to go. There are people that don't know that salvation is free, and we have some really, really, really good news to them as they're working their tails off trying to earn it, whether it's by their own morality or whether it's a false religion, a worse based religion. And I'm, you know, I'm super excited about this new building. Like we get to equip and train and, and get more people in to do so. But like that's not the point, right? It's pointless if we're not going. Like, may God strike us with lightning and burn it down if we're not going. If we get comfortable, if this becomes our home. So seventh place physical address, I think I counted, not counting all the different homes you guys met in first. But I pray that it never becomes our home. I pray that we remember that our name is Sojourn. God will, if it does, God will light this place on fire and remind us and persecute us. Like he did to those at Babel when he said to go. And like he did to those in Acts when he said to go. He killed Stephen. He's like, you don't believe me? I'll I'll kill Stephen. Now go. He might have done that. I don't know. I don't, I don't know the whole situation. He might have done that to the 50,000 person church in China that we talked about last week. I don't know. But God is gracious when He does so. Because the so that is that we go. We're not in here learning all this stuff so that we can sit and. I'll stop. I'll stop. I can go really long on this. We're learning and we're training and we're being equipped so that we can go. Those of you who have received this Holy Spirit, we remember what Christ did. His His substitutionary atonement to accomplish our redemption. How He justified us. So I want you to picture in the upper room, on that Thursday night, He's going to be on the cross in a few hours. Last time He's with His disciples, and they're going to take... This Lord's Supper, where He changes the meaning to what we get to do today, which is to remember His body by taking bread and to remember the cup of wrath that He drank for us to the dregs on our behalf. And I have here on the slide, remember what He said. Picture yourself in the room. Take, eat. This is my body. He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink anew with you in My Father's kingdom. So we take this bread to remember the body broken, and we take the cup, like I said, to remember that Jesus drank the cup of wrath that was going to be poured on our heads if you are in Christ, we welcome you to take this meal with us this morning. If you have not accepted Jesus' free gift of salvation, as Dylan says often, we invite you and even plead with you to take Christ. So, the music will play. Walk down the aisle, and uh, we'll have some communion, and I'm going to pray for us. Please pray with me. God, thank you so much for... Saving us by your works, your perfection, and then the substitute of Jesus. And God, continue to show us the futility of our own works and what that leads to. That insecurity that we act out of so often. Show us that we are secure. and We're not slaves to that anymore. We are your sons and we are your daughters. God, as we take communion, help us to remember what you had to do. What it had to be like for the Father to turn His face away from you as He looked upon our substitute. Thank you for letting us get to partake in that until you come again. I pray that it would mean something very special to us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. may come down.